Uh-huh. I wear, I wear, I inspire myself with what I wear every day. So for this, I you know I had a little Epic swag that I had on. Yeah. My USA today, my USA hat comes from uh, Jim Craig, the USA Olympic hockey goalie. This is uh, the 40-year anniversary of them beating the Russians, and I was uh, feeling inspired That's on. Awesome. Uh, on uh, David beating Goliath cuz I uh, I know at a stage we were David and I still feel like that some days. It's time work way I want to connect the listeners to the best of the best. Welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. I'm your host, Pat Costello, the co-founder and principal at Evolve MGA. Our mission for the podcast is to bring the insurance industry the best of the best. My guest today is John Hahn, the co-founder and CEO of Epic Brokers. Epic is the 15th largest retail insurance broker in the United States. They have nearly 900 million in revenue and more than 3,000 associates across the country. John is from New York and played baseball in college as a pitcher throwing in the low 90s. He has an incredibly inspiring entrepreneurial spirit, and I really enjoyed speaking with him. Before founding Epic, John helped start and sold Tri-City Brokerage, which if you aren't familiar, is one of the nation's largest and most successful wholesale agencies. Anyone that's interested in entrepreneurship, overcoming adversity, the benefits of the insurance industry, running an enormous company, in the future of Epic will really love this conversation. John and I discussed his college baseball career, which included overcoming a huge injury, his introduction to the insurance industry, how he helped found and name Epic Brokers, how he hired 52 people in four days, why people need to consider joining Epic, how failure was by far his biggest teacher, and how the clothes that you wear can supercharge your day. Without further ado, here's John. Mr. John Hahn, how are you, man? What's going on? All good. All good. How about you, Pat? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I, uh, I'm so excited to have you, and I want to be respectful of your time. There's a few things I really want to accomplish in this podcast. Um, I, want, I want people to know who you are, and I want people to understand your journey through the insurance industry because objectively, you are one of the most successful people in the industry. And frankly, I think that, you know, your career's taken lots of different turns and you've been on different sides of uh, the distribution chain from wholesale, wholesale to retail. And so what I'm hoping we can do today is number one, tell your story, get the audience to better know you on a personal level. I wanna hear what got you into insurance and what caused, what caused you to found Tri-City Brokerage. I want to discuss how you transition from wholesale to retail. And then along the way, would love to pause on major milestones, learning moments, and habits that have helped you achieve success. And then finally, at the end, would love to discuss Epic Now, advice for a new employee at Epic, Galway Holdings, and your vision for the future of your business in the industry. So if that sounds okay to you, John, I would love to jump into um, your background, your childhood, how you grew up, because I know you're from the East Coast, but now you're out in the West Coast, so I'll let you dive in. 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Pat. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on and uh, appreciate the opportunity to uh, tell people about kind of who we are and our company and uh, how, how we got to this stage. So, yeah, I, I grew up on the East Coast. I was uh, born in Brooklyn and moved to Long Island at a pretty early age and considered myself a, uh, a, a diehard New Yorker. Um, mm-hmm. uh, ended up uh, going to college, played uh, college baseball, uh, probably uh, spent more time doing that than I did at school. But uh, <laughs> I lear- learned a lot, learned a lot from that experience. And and look, uh, from from my perspective, uh you know, I grew up in a pretty middle-class uh, family environment. Uh, had great parents. I can't blame them for anything that's gone wrong in my life. They've uh, they gave us a really great foundation, and uh, I've got uh, three siblings, and we were like everybody else. Uh, uh, I was the oldest, so I I, I found my way to uh, bully my way to whatever I, I thought I wanted, and. <laughs> Uh, had a really normal, uh, really normal childhood. So I, I don't have any uh, dysfunctional stuff to look back at and mm-hmm. to pay a psychiatrist uh, money for to sit in a chair. So I've, uh, <laughs> every, every mistake I've made, I own them and uh, they're all mine. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think, uh, look, my path into insurance was uh, like most people was not, uh, it was not something I planned for, even though my, uh, my dad was in the insurance business. He was on the risk management side. And uh, while I was uh, playing baseball at uh, New York Tech, my junior year, he uh, got me a summer job there. And I very quickly saw and learned that it was a really terrific industry. I, I enjoyed the people I met. I worked for a large brokerage firm. Right. I was I was doing the worst job of all time. I was chasing uh, aged receivables and <laughs> uh, and 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 as you know, since you're in the industry, that is the crappiest job you can ever have. Yes, yes, um, there's no doubt. And John, real quick, I would love to uh, I would love to just pause on the baseball career because I don't think people realize how much of an athlete you were and are. Um, I heard rumors that you were a pitcher and that you could throw 95. Is there any truth to those rumors, or is there any more background you can give us on that? So yeah, I, I was a I, uh, I pitched in college, um, and uh, you know there were no guns back then. So I'm uh, I'm older than uh, I'd like to admit, but uh-huh. uh, yeah, I was in, I was probably in the low 90s, and I uh, I played for a great team. Uh, I went to New York Tech, and uh, the handful of our our guys on our team were were all slotted to go to NYU and. Uh, including myself as a freshman and uh, early in August, uh, Title IX kicked in and uh, they eliminated all Division One sports. So most of us did not have uh, a scholarship remaining. And I give the coaches at NYU a lot of uh, credit. They found a, a school that even though I lived on Long Island, to be honest, I never heard of New York Tech. And mm-hmm. uh, they were trying to build a great program. They had a they had a coach who was uh, very uh, was a big force. Um, he uh, played in uh, played at the major league level with Pete Rose and was his roommate. Wow. So, uh, so we had a we had a great team. I had a, a fantastic experience there. Mm-hmm. Learned a lot. Um, and look, I think it was one of my first lessons in in business came from, you know, being on a on a team, uh, having mm-hmm. a coach who was tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had high aspirations. He was uh, his goal was for us to get to the college world series and for us to turn our program from division two to division one. 
which all of those things almost happened. Uh, we lost in our regional final game my senior year to get to the series, but uh, but we lost to a future uh, uh, Hall, uh, Cy Young Award winner, Steve Bedrosian. So not not uh, too bad. But yeah. I hurt my arm, hurt my arm in my sophomore year, and frankly, that kind of adversity for a young kid. Uh, you read about athletes today who lose whatever they think their dream is. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I got the focus on sort of what life was going to be. And the first thing I had to do is figure out how I would be successful by, uh, by losing a foot off my fastball. And, uh, I actually became a better and smarter pitcher. I was not throwing anywhere near where I could overpower and dominate hitters, but, mm-hmm. uh, I became pretty crafty and learned uh, four or five pitches and, got my way through a four year career with one career loss. So, uh, wow. I went from, I went from being a power pitcher to a junk pitcher. And, uh, but I did realize that the, the guys we came against and played, it would have been, it would have been a steep climb to play at a high level. And, uh, guy who pitched ahead of me on our team, uh, Don Cooper, uh, he ended up actually get, getting to the major leagues at five years in the bigs. And mm-hmm. uh, he has had an incredible career with the Chicago White Sox. He's the pitching coach there, won a, won a World Series with wow. them. And uh, so, yeah, so it's uh, it's fun to see the direction that, that guys went into. But, uh, you know, I, I, I use that experience as one that uh, I correlate to business, which is, you know, how do you – how do you build teams where um, it's not about the name on the back of the Jersey. It's about the name mm-hmm. on the front. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, we, uh, we had a lot of accomplishments and a lot of achievements. And the year after I left, we went division one and uh, school became a, a great powerhouse. And I, uh, I launched into this, uh, this crazy business of insurance. <laughs> so let's talk about that transition because I'm sure you took a lot of that competitiveness from college sports directly into the business world. Can you talk, and you mentioned also that your dad was a risk manager. Can you talk about your first job coming out of college in the insurance industry, why you took it and what that job consisted of and any major learning moments from, you know, that first entry into the insurance world? Yeah. uh, My, you know, my original goal at school was if, if, uh, if, baseball did not work out, which seemed early on, I was pretty realistic that it wasn't going to, uh, I was going to go, I was studying pre-law. I was going to go that direction. Mm-hmm. And after the summer job, I literally came back and I, I, my co- my college roommate was also my best friend and teammate. And, uh, I said to him, look, we got to switch from pre-law to finance. I think this is a great industry. Um, it's not as boring as it sounds. Insurance has got a terrible reputation. Everybody hates the name, but I said, it's much different than that. And, uh, we, Luckily, the the firm that we worked for was a a, a large brokerage firm, which uh, you're too way too young to know the name of, but it's <laughs> uh, f- was Fred S. James that uh, through multiple acquisitions and mergers are were you know ultimately a part of the uh, Marsh brand today, and uh, they hired myself and my 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 roommate uh, and actually uh, devised a training program for uh, young young employees, people who, uh, they had, a they had high regard for their background and their pedigree. And to be frank, they loved, uh, hiring athletes. They thought that they were competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I knew some my, my dad had introduced, I had known some of the key people there from, uh, from my dad and they knew that, uh, you know, I was all about winning and yep. 
You know, when you when you come into any business with an approach that it's a it's about winning and team, uh, you can pretty much get the most out of any talent. And so I was lucky. I I, I fell into a training program so I could learn the different product segments and mm-hmm. product areas. Um, and John, they, just to just to jump in really quick, I I just want to make a correlation between um, Philadelphia Insurance because Jim McGuire was really famous for also hiring athletes. And so that's, that's kind of been a common theme that I've seen, but just to clarify. So that first job that you took, that was, that was on the retail side of things, or was that what that was on the wholesale side of things? No. So that was on the retail side. Retail. So Got it. yeah. So I was, you know, essentially I was being positioned in certain product areas and most of them were, were marketing oriented. And so I learned property first and then I, I migrated into uh, casualty lines. And mm-hmm. to be frank, I really, I, I loved it. It was, uh, I thought it was creative and interesting. Um, really uh, just took a, a, a shine to thinking I could be, I could be a, a, a top notch casualty marketing guy. And uh, over the, over my course of time there, my mentor was a guy named Kieran Burke and he was my boss and uh Toward the end of uh, kind of my fourth year there, uh, Kieran was assigned to building a uh, internal wholesaler for Fred S. James, and uh, he recruited me into that. Seemed really exciting. Uh, I was geared to do that in New York, and mm-hmm. one day he called me in on a February. Uh, it was freezing cold, and he said, "What do you think about moving to California?" I said, I, "I don't know. I don't know if my accent would fly there. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't like any California sports teams, but what's the job?" He explained it to me, and look, I was 26 years old. I had just wrapped up my MBA. I did that uh-huh. at night, uh-huh. um, and I uh, I saw that there was no real downside. I saw that I was going to get an opportunity to uh, start a business, build a business. I didn't know anything about what I was walking myself into. Uh-huh. I didn't know I didn't know anything about the San Francisco market, and I just said, you know, worst thing that can happen is I screw this up and I fail, and I'll go back to New York where people understand me. Right. I, well, I'm very excited to hear that the love for the California teams has since changed, which will let the audience in on a little later on. But in terms of your first mentor, Kieran, was there like a mentorship program or did you just meet him organically? Did you seek him out? How did you guys get connected? So I had, I was fortunate enough to have actually two other mentors in, in that company. And, uh, and one was the president of the company, a guy named Tim Mahoney. And mm-hmm. Tim went on to become president of Marsh uh, North America. He was a great guy. And uh, he really uh, gave me insight on the industry and, and the business and career pathing and whatnot. And uh, Kieran worked for Tim. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, we, we were really connected by Tim, but I found out quickly that we were very different and unique people. But uh, together, we were pretty powerful and um, it really, uh, it led to, you know, the, the, the ultimate story, which I'll talk about a little later on as to how we uh, started Tri-City, because uh-huh. uh, Kieran and I were two of the five founding partners. So, um, yes, I, I, I didn't really know Kieran. I was introduced to him and mm-hmm. we sort of figured out that uh, for us, one plus one uh, equal, was equal to three or more. And mm-hmm. uh, we just started uh, doing some great things and having fun together. That sounds good. Did you put any structure into your mentorship relationships? Like where, you know, 
I'm going to meet with Kieran once, once a month, or, um, you know, I'm going to meet with Tim once a month or anything like that. Or was it more just kind of organic? You know, you guys are kind of drawn to common things. You guys had a strong connection. Well, the industry was different back then. So uh, organized uh, mentorship wasn't really the case. So uh -huh. mine really related to uh, 5.30 at, uh, at the local insurance bar. And he introduced <laughs> me to everybody in the industry. And I learned, I learned everything about insurance from probably six o'clock until eight o'clock at night having a Thankfully, I was not a, uh, a hard liquor drinker. I was, I was a beer drinker, but I watched a lot of other guys. Uh, uh, they could do amazing things and be really smart with a lot of vodka. And I, I, I did not go down that path. So, uh, so he introduced me to the excess and surplus lines universe. I didn't know much about it. Mm -hmm. He was definitely a well-known uh, person and he was a, he was a, a, a needle mover. Mm -hmm. Um, I got a chance to work on some, you know, really large, complex uh, clients and accounts. I uh, got to meet every underwriter on the planet. He took me everywhere with him. So whether it was London or Chicago, all the hubs where uh, casually ENS uh, underwriters lived. And I just really liked the game. I thought it was really action packed and fast. And, you know, I, uh, I had a chance to be creative and uh, had fun doing it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree with all those things. Um, and that's, you know, along the same lines as to what I've experienced when, you know, my brother and I delved into the evolve world and cyber insurance and creating a business. So I'm on the exact same page. So to, to continue with your story. So, uh, you moved out to the Bay area and at that point you were still with your original company and what was the, can you, can you explain the transition between, um, going from that um, retail world, and then you you opened up the wholesale branch of that office in San Francisco, and then it sounds like that company may have been sold, and that's what caused you to start Tri Cities. Yeah, so I I moved here um, to start a wholesale branch for Fred S. James, mm -hmm. and so in doing so, I mean I was fortunate that I had uh, a parent company that uh, was looking to. Uh, take business that had been put with third party wholesalers and intermediaries and begin to capture that business in house, so to speak. And mm -hmm. uh, so I was I was charged with with doing that. I never built a business. I actually I had no idea what the hell I was doing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, from finding office space to uh, learning how to lease a photocopier. And back then there were no computers. So I had a you know, what the heck was a telex machine and yeah. all of that. And uh, so figured that out and the market was very soft when I moved out. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked, I worked my butt off. I worked seven days a week to try and get, uh, brokers to give me, uh, accounts and you've, you've, you've started a business, Pat, you know, how, you know, how hard that is to oh, yeah. get traction. I mean, totally. to really get traction. Mm -hmm. It's hard. And look, I, I spoke, a, I spoke a different language and I worked a different time clock than my competitors. Mm -hmm. You know, I woke up and got after it every day at six while everyone else was in at nine. And mm -hmm. I didn't shut, I didn't shut it down until eight or nine o'clock at night. And, uh, I just started showing that I, I could outwork the competition and look, I got lucky kind of late 1984, mm -hmm. um, the casual, the casualty market started to change mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. started to harden. 
and I had gotten a good reputation with uh, with underwriters, and and my style of doing business was was different than than others. It was not a, you know, here's an attached submission, please quote. I uh, I did a write up, and even if they didn't if they didn't write the account or quote it, they uh, they could look in two pages and decide whether they want to spend any time on it. And right, so it it kind of caught fire a little bit, and then. Fred S. James got sold shortly thereafter. Um, Kieran, you know, called me and said, look, I think it's, uh, I think the market is right. I think we should maybe think about starting our own company. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should do it with a couple of other, other guys. We had opened an office in uh, Chicago and New York. I was like 29 and mm-hmm. I said, okay, sounds good, but I don't have any money. So, uh, you know, where are we going to get the money from? Who's going to, I've not done this before, so it sounds yeah. like a really good idea. So if you've got somebody willing to invest in this, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. No, I don't. And uh, we ended up uh, having five of us meet in Chicago a week later and spent the day kind of going through what a, a business might look like. And we identified people we thought would uh, be interested in investing. Mm-hmm. And uh, nobody on the A or the B list uh, really showed up, but we had somebody on the C list who mm-hmm. thought it was a really cool idea. And frankly, after a weekend meeting, uh, he gave us a million bucks. And uh, wow, three weeks three weeks later, we started we started Tri City, November uh, November nineteen eighty five. So so was he like a, a stereotypical venture capitalist that we would you know find in Silicon Valley today, or was he? How did you find him as an investor? One of the one of the underwriters I developed a good relationship with was uh, underwriting on behalf of at that time the Illinois Insurance Exchange, okay. which was kind of a I don't know if you heard of it, but it was sort of like a mini Lloyd's approach to underwriting ENS exposures. And uh, okay. and his owner uh, was a guy named Jeff Beresford Wood, who owned a. Uh, you know, it's sort of a holding company that was in and around all aspects of insurance, reinsurance, broking, underwriting, MGA. And he was looking to get into the wholesale space mm-hmm. and uh, he loved the concept. And he was a, he was definitely a, a gambler and uh, cool. And it didn't take him long to commit the money. And, you know, he, uh, he made a really smart decision. We, we used, we only used about a third of the, of the million bucks that he gave us. We used about 300,000 and, we turned cash flow positive uh, in four months and never turned back. So he uh, he was clipping coupons. <laughs> so when you pitched your business plan to him, was there anything about your wholesale brokers that you you saw as a major differentiator or something that you saw as like, yeah. you know, we're going to change the game and we're going to be extremely successful for the following reasons that are different from a prototypical wholesaler? Was there anything like that that came to mind when you guys were presenting that business plan? Yeah, there was. It was there was a very specific um, what we called you know word value proposition didn't really exist back then, but mm-hmm. we proposed it as such, and it was uh, underwriters were absolutely just swamped in submissions in 1985. The, I mean, the market was harder than it had ever been. Uh-huh. Um, there was truly no casualty capacity, and. We were going to, our, our notion was to open up three offices. So we'd be in three different time zones. Okay. Uh, we would be accessible to our clients all hours of the day. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we promoted ourselves as being what we were, which was a young, late 20s SWAT team. Uh-huh. And on every piece of business that came in, every single person in, in our company was involved. So we had a total seamless, orderless approach to the business. And if we had a contractor in at that time, it took three or four carriers to get 5 million in limits done. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would on the West Coast, we do a portion. Our guys in Chicago would do a piece. They do a million or two million. And our guys in New York would do a million or two million. And it, carriers loved it. We did all the pre-underwriting for them. They could look at any submission of ours and they could know in, in less than five minutes whether they wanted to pass or play. Wow. As opposed to looking through a pile of information like this and trying to understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, we were like, we were just a SWAT factory and, and we just, we ran, we just ran hard. And, uh, and then we, and then we played hard. We had a lot of fun. It was work uh, hard, play hard. Yeah. I love yeah, that. Man. Yeah. Still the same. You know, it's still the same. I, this should be an industry and, and, and look, you, you tell me, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we've gotten to know each other a little bit over the last couple of weeks. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, your family's, your family's in the business and, uh, you knew it's a, it's an industry. You can, you can do both, right. You can have, uh, you can have a great family life and yep. you can have fun and you can, uh, you can celebrate winning and, you get to work your, you get to work hard and uh, and bear the fruit to your own labor. I fully agree with you, John. I think everything that we've discussed has really been based around the idea that the ins- insurance industry is a gem of, of an industry that a lot of people don't fully understand or comprehend because they have associations in their mind with their car insurance or you know with um, you know maybe some sort of accident or something like that. But the fact that the insurance business is the relationship business and the fact that there's so much bonding that happens when you're closing deals and when you're meeting people, when you're establishing connections um, that you know allow business owners at the end of the day to get the coverage that they actually need and individuals as well. Um, it's a beautiful thing. And so I've, I've really enjoyed it thus far. And also there's a lot of areas where I can relate to your story of you know coming into a business with you know late 20s, SWAT team, commitment to service, commitment to hard work, coming up with creative solutions to provide your clients at the end of the day, the best possible experience they can. That's everything that we're striving to do as well. So I connected with a lot of the things that you just mentioned. And so it sounds like that was, um, it was a super fun time to grow Tri-Cities. And so that was, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was 85 to 2003. So, yeah, so we, we, uh, our, our run really was, you know, 2005, uh, 1985. And then, uh, we had various, uh, times within our Tri-City years where we brought in some capital providers and, you know, we saw an opportunity to grow our business a little differently. Private equity wasn't in the business back then, but, mm-hmm. uh, there were some unique carriers that were, uh, that were looking to invest in distribution as things were changing and, and look for us, I mean, 19, you know, we ran 10 years from 85 to 95 of, you know, really running it up and built a great business and mm-hmm. had grown to be the number three national wholesaler. And, uh, and then things changed, you know, the, the world changed. And a, a lot of the retailers at that point in time started 
creating or buying or forming their own wholesalers and started moving business into that. And we had to switch our, our business model completely from getting uh, uh, from our market share being with national brokers to uh, being able to service independent brokers. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, it uh, took work. I mean, it was, to be frank, I, I learned something about the business from 85 to 95 about, mm-hmm. you know, team and alignment and partnership. Uh, but I, I really didn't learn about running a business until uh, things started failing and started falling apart. Mm-hmm. And we had to change our, our approach and change our model. So uh, that is when uh, I really learned what uh, business is all about because you you don't learn that much from from success, but you learn a lot from adversity and from failure. And uh, we had a lot to change. So, well, John, it sounds like there's a direct correlation between your experience with baseball and when you hurt your arm and when you had to master those alternative pitches and deal with adversity to to become crafty. To um, you know, your experience with the wholesale model with Tri Cities, and I also want people to be aware of like the scale that you took this thing to, which, you know, the stats that I have are you guys had four offices, 200 employees and 600 million in gross written premium. So, um, I don't know if those are the the same numbers that you have off the top of your head, but enormous scale. Those are the stats. Yeah. Yeah. And we did it all organically. I mean, back then there were there were no acquisitions. It was, you know, one, one employee, one person at a time. We cherry picked people who had that, uh, that winning attitude and, and that desire to do something, uh, to do something great. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's not hard. You're, like I said, you're, you're building a business, finding, finding great talent is really challenging, really difficult. And then, and then molding them. Yeah. Yep. I, I, I totally agree with you there. So when 2003 came around, what were the biggest factors that caused you to sell the business that you, you know, you'd built over the span of years? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, from 98 to kind of 2002, uh, we had some of my partners ended up going in different directions. There were different agendas, personal interests were different. I had to totally reposition the company. I had to find a way to give, uh, provide real equity opportunities to uh, people who were getting it done with the new direction of, of us being relevant for independent brokers versus the mm-hmm. large complex national accounts. And look, a lot of my friends ended up, uh, they're still in, in, in the wholesale business today, whether it's at Amwins or RT or mm-hmm. CRC. Yep. I mean, I've got, I've, I've got, uh, I've got disciples all over the universe. Um, but we had a, a different lane and we found out that we had to be, we had to figure out how to be a player in the program arena mm-hmm. to handle smaller accounts more effectively and more efficiently. We had to learn, we had to really get into aggregation opportunities. Mm-hmm. Technology was just starting to sort of have a play in this with the dot-com era and people looked at insurance as being an area that would be easy to uh, sort of just, you know, reinvent. Um, 
you know, the I think the the ideas that they could uh, change distribution dramatically, I think, were flawed. But you could be more efficient and more effective. And mm-hmm. and we didn't have a capital base to do it. So uh, coming out of, you know, end of 2001, uh, the, 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 the trade center went down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the market changed again radically. Mm-hmm. So our company from. October 01 to October 02, the company doubled in size without us adding one person. Wow. And yeah, and uh, I was just, we were looking out and saying at that point in time, there had become a real market to, to, for uh, owners of wholesalers to monetize their investments, which was part of it. But really part of it was how did we have a capital base where we could um, be in the M&A game? I didn't have any experience in that. And so we went and uh, we ran a very, it was a tight process. It wasn't one that we really drove ourselves. We had a couple of interested parties, including Chubb Insurance Company, who really saw that uh, having a wholesale engine could be really valuable for them. Mm And we went down the lane with them for about six months, and then uh, out of the out of the woodwork company prep, you know, New York Stock Exchange company called Basis uh, came to me through uh, an advisor, and uh, you know, be frank, they I love what they had to say. They were uh, they were intermediaries in five other verticals, um, including a life insurance wholesale business. Okay, and and they were looking for a uh, a new opportunity to uh, to uh, take a platform and take it to the next level. And, you know, they, I gave them like 45 days to get a deal done and they, they did it in 44 and we, uh, we, we, we sold it for probably seven or eight times uh, what we thought we would get for it. And, and we were in position to really grow and build, uh, build out the company. So mm-hmm. it was a, it was a really great deal. They were, a, they were a terrific owner. I, I learned a lot, uh, got my M and a chops there and, mm-hmm. Learned how, learned how to use other people's money for the first time, which I had no idea how to do that before. Uh-huh. And, um, that's a way better game if you can figure that out. So. <laughs> yeah, that's super interesting. That's something I, I feel like I could totally uh, learn more about myself. Um, so, okay, to, to continue on with the story. So uh, it sounds like you, you sell to Bysis. Uh Things are great. You're there for a while. And then, you know, you're at a stage where you can really do whatever you want. Right. And so, um, you have Epic in the future, but it sounds like you had like a a little bit of an intermediary period where you didn't know what you were going to do. And so I'd love to hear, you know, the transition from Bysis into, um, maybe meeting Dan Francis and going down the the journey of Epic brokers. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so yeah, it, 2006, uh, things were going great from my perspective. I was, we had, we had kind of quadrupled the company in the time we were there. We built out the areas we wanted. I had a terrific team. Uh, they were a great owner. And unfortunately for them, uh, there were some issues that had uh, occurred within the market. They got caught up in uh, Spitzer investigation. They had, uh, they were one of the first uh, you'd be interested. They had one of the first mm-hmm. real large cyber claims that uh, I had ever seen or witnessed. And to be frank, it, it set the company back on its heels for about three months. And 
and it probably costs them 10 million bucks to, to solve it and settle it. And, you know, nobody knew what they were doing back then. And, and ultimately mm-hmm. the stock, the uh, stock started stalling and the CEO of the company decided to leave. And he went to, uh, he went to Hewitt to, to become CEO there. Mm-hmm. And they decided they were going to sell the company, uh, asked me to engage in that process, which I did because I, I felt it was going to be a real learning experience. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to position the company for the right exit to whoever we were going to become a part of. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be in the room to have that voice. And uh, it took about four to six months for that to happen. And during that time, it was fa- fascinating process. It was late 06, early 07. Mm-hmm. Um, the world was good. Financial markets were great. Um, but I determined that wherever we were going to land, uh, my time at doing this was pretty much over. I was 50. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, one of my passions is wine. I had in my head decided I was going to, uh, I was going to create a fantastic Pinot Noir brand. I, created the business plan. I had the money, I had the winemaker, I had the fruit. Mm -hmm. And so my, uh, my goal was to, uh, was really to ride this out, have a nice transition, get my people who I loved into the right home, Mm -hmm. fight for them. I was going to transition the company to one of my, you know, I become one of my best friends, John Jennings. Mm -hmm. Uh, John was going to lead the business and, uh, it was a great, great story. Um, and so the company ultimately got sold to uh, got sold to JC Flowers and was being merged with Crump. Mm-hmm. And at that same time, uh, my other best friend Dan Francis was CEO of ABD. ABD had sold their business to Greater Bay Bank a few years earlier, and Dan found out at the time that our company was being sold, that Greater Bay Bank was being sold to Wells Fargo. And he said, I don't want to work for a global bank. And he and I were sitting there one day and just said, you know, how many, I mean, what is the serendipity of this moment where two people who have been with companies for a really long period of time end up becoming free agents and not knowing what they were going to do. So Uh I first tried, I tried to convince him to come into the winery gig if he would start a (laughs) deli with me and, uh, and he didn't, he didn't think the deli thing sounded that sexy. So, uh-huh. uh, so he and I spent some time. We looked at the market. We had connected with uh, one of our financial uh, investors at that time, a guy named Jeff Kappel. Um, he had some thoughts, and we looked at the California market. Uh, I hadn't been in retail in a long time, but all my clients were retail brokers. And... You know, I've been studying that space for a long time. I had great relationships with owners of businesses, great producers. He knew how to run and operate a retail practice business. Uh, we just said we could do something really creative and really unique and really different, differentiated. And mm-hmm. uh, we ended up putting our business plan together of uh, what we thought uh, we could do. And uh, come April of uh, 07, we decided we were going to do this. Um, the only uh, missing piece was money. Mm-hmm. And we decided we needed $100 million. I don't know how we came up with that number, but uh, it uh, seemed like a lot of money at the time, but it seemed like one that we could uh, we could actually, we could spend. Okay. Okay. Nice. That's, that's, uh, 
That's wild. That's very cool that you guys were free agents at the same time. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's so funny. Our videographer, Chris, who's here, you know, is, uh, is of the Michael Sourdough family. So anyone who's in the Bay Area, uh, you might have an idea what that is. Some of the best sandwiches around. So, um, it's funny. We were just my talking son, about my, 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 my sons are going to be excited to hear about that, by the way. <laughs> they, Marin Catholic boy. And that was, uh-huh. that was lunch uh, three, three days a week, I think. Oh man. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. So, so you get the, the, um, financial backing that you need in order to go into the retail business. And, you know, if, if you are, if someone gives you a hundred million dollars, you know, I'm, I'm guessing you had a business plan laid out of, okay, we're going to put this money here. We're going to put this money there. Was there anything that comes to mind is like, okay, this is the primary place that we need to put capital to ensure this is business is going to be successful. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we thought it would take us four or five months to, to get the money. Uh, we thought it would, you know, we thought it would be maybe three or four investors. Um, you know, I had, I had brought in, uh, some private equity money, some investment money when I was at Tri-City and they did really well in the Bices trade. Uh-huh. So I had a, I had a little bit of street cred and, uh, and my intention was to really take the summer of 07 off. My son was a senior in, in, in high school. I was, we were going to go, go to some baseball stadiums I hadn't been to and uh, take our time raising money. And we were thinking about launching it in kind of September of 07 when, you know, we took our first stop to uh, Greenwich, Connecticut in May. Uh, we saw Stone Point Capital who uh, were, probably the leading industry private equity investor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chuck Davis is a legendary guy. And so we, uh, we stopped there, made our pitch in two days. They said, we'll commit the whole hundred million. You know, where, where are we going to deploy it? Question you just asked. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we had a platform sort of ready-made um, platform was called Calco. Uh, Calco was a, an 80, well, at that time, 70 something year old brand. They were the brokerage arm of Cal casualty insurance company. Okay. Uh, again, serendipity, but, uh, you know, Dan and uh, my wife had both worked for seven or eight years for Calco in the eighties. So they knew that business really well. We knew the people, Uh um, and they had had, uh, they had had a, a, a downfall. So uh, I think most buyers would not have seen them as being a great buy because they had uh, their revenue base had, had dwindled quite a bit, but we saw the inherent value in it. And for us, it was actually a good time. They were in uh, Orange County, Sacramento and uh, San Mateo. Mm-hmm. So our goal was our, 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 our business model was a, was a regional business. It was California dominant. We saw an opportunity in the middle market to uh, not only acquire firms, mm-hmm. but to hire great producers with books. Mm-hmm. And the goal and the opportunity was really around the equity opportunity we were providing. We were different than everybody else that, uh, we gave uh, producers, key people, everybody in the company a chance to either buy equity alongside us and Stone Point, and by us meaning me and Dan and, and mm-hmm. what we invested, uh, or they could earn equity. And, uh, you know, if you, you think about back to sort of 
07, getting to the end of that stage and heading into 08, the financial market started to uh, show stress. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our competitors just hunkered down. They were, they were just waiting it out. And look, we didn't have a business. So we were very aggressive and we were out there trying to hire and acquire. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Stone Point guys uh, saw the merit in what we were doing. We, they thought we were going to make some nice uh, value acquisitions. And uh, we saw an amazing influx of uh, talent and that, that liked what we were doing. And our, our model was one that was about specialization. It was about integration. It was not about being a roll-up. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan is also has an athletic background. Dan was a, a, an amazing football player, all Pac-10 guy, he played linebacker at Stanford. Okay. Uh, he and I, uh, he and I both had, you know, we'd been friends for a long time. My wife worked for him for 20 years. We, you know, we, we had similar designs on how to build teams and, uh, and that teams were the main way to make this work, but also that we felt that in addition to equity alignment, that uh, work-life balance mattered. And, uh, and that ultimately for us, the, the promotion was that uh, we originally thought about it as being culture first, but it was really people first. It wasn't investors first, wasn't clients first. It was people first. And we felt that if we built a great company that took care of our people, gave them opportunity, uh, they felt valued, it was an empathetic culture, Mm-hmm. that they would stay with us and do great work. Mm-hmm. And if they stayed with us and did great work, we felt clients would join us and they would stay. And if clients join and you have a high retention of clients and revenue, shareholders are going to do great. And frankly, a lot of the shareholders were our people. So uh, it was, uh, you know, might seem s- simple today, but back then it was pretty unique. And and we really, we uh, we struck a chord with, with, a lot of individuals who felt that they had just become a number and they had just become an employee that comes and goes and punches the clock. And we needed everyone to contribute. Everyone was laying bricks, everyone was making coffee and, and you know, including me. And, and, mm-hmm. and I still go by that today, right? You gotta, mm-hmm. my, my belief is uh, you gotta walk the talk. And uh, if you walk the talk, people, you don't, have to, you don't have to motivate people by words. You motivate people by actions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's what we did. And, uh, you know, this thing just started taking off. And, John, can you speak to the name a little bit? I know we talked about this yesterday, but the, the word epic, what, why that was, you know, the inspiration for the name of the company. Yeah. So, you know, as you know, finding names is not that easy. Um, and since we were building a team game with alignment and, and we wanted a lot of shareholders, it wasn't going to be the Dan and John company. Uh, so in May of, uh, once we got the money, uh, before we launched, our plan was to launch in July, uh, Dan and his wife and uh, my wife, Nancy and I, we went to Hawaii for a week with the sole intention of, uh, drinking Mai Tais and coming up with a name. And uh, <laughs> we, uh, we started banging names around and, you know, getting, being able to trademark names and get the insurance commissioner to approve it was challenging. I remember I, uh, late one afternoon, I went for a workout and it was just, we needed something big and it, it needed to be important, more than big. 
I mean, the vision was big. It didn't mean it had to be a big company. It, it had to be important. And I came back I, and think about it. Oh, oh, eight, you know, oh, seven. Epic wasn't really as wide of wide ranging a word as it is today. I came back and I said, Epic. And other than Dan's wife, Nancy and Dan both said, that's awesome. And Dan's wife said, that sounds too bold. It sounds like you guys uh -huh. are bragging. You haven't done anything yet. <laughs> I said, it's a goal. We got to get there. And, it's the and vision. then frankly, yeah, it was a vision. And then, you know, frankly, we tried to get the word, the name, and we couldn't get the name. We couldn't get the trade, the mark on it. So we we're literally getting ready to launch. And I was driving down to Dan's house. We were, we were announcing the next day and uh, we finally were able to land on the name. The, the, we knew we were acquiring Calco and their office was, was kind of off the Edgewood road off, uh, exit of two, of, uh, of highway 280. Okay. And so I said, Edgewood partners insurance, and we needed a C and we ended up with center. So our, our actual name was Edgewood partners insurance center, but the acronym was Epic and we became known as Epic and we launched as such and, the only way people ever see Edgewood is in official circles. They'll still see Edgewood Partners Insurance Center. So, all right, that's super. So the cool. name was the name was the goal. The name was the goal. The vision was there from the beginning. That's exactly. that's very 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 cool. So, as you were growing Epic, was there any major milestones that you came across or look back on as, you know, these were instrumental to where we are now, because I also want to give the audience the stats that I uh, also provide in the intro. But as of now, Epic is has at least 700 million in revenue, more than 3,000 associates across the country, and is the 15th largest U.S. retail insurance broker, which some of that may have changed in the, um, the last few months. But what caused you to get to that point? So yeah, so the only correction you got most of it right is uh, we're we're nine hundred million of revenue now, so closing in on on a billion. And look, we never wow. we never used financial targets as our goal. It was it was to do the right things. It was to build the right company. It was to be in the right spaces. So yeah, I mean, early on, um, you know, you're trying to you know, we had Calco, we had our platforms, we had some buzz going. Uh, the trades were very favorable to what we were doing. Uh, we had a lot of incoming interest and uh, and probably the 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 one uh, moment that kind of changed the dynamics for us were we got together with uh, a guy named Wally Brown, who is a kind of a legendary insurance guy in the Bay Area. He had built a nice business, sold it to uh, Arthur J. Gallagher, had been a part of Gallagher for years. Uh, he and his partner, Brian Quinn, um, came to us and said, you know, what do you, what do you think about doing something in the East Bay? And, you know, at the time I was like, you know, I, you guys work for Gallagher. I don't, are you going to really move? You, yeah. you know, you've been there a long time. And, uh, and they, there were a lot of things that had happened that for them had changed sort of the dynamics of, of that company. And they loved what we were doing and it took us a couple of months, but uh, come early December, we hired, uh, we hired Wally and Brian and uh, two other producers and 
three or four of their service teams and hired them on uh, the first Friday of uh, December. And uh, we were, Dan and I went out there uh, that day to have a nice celebratory lunch with them as they were resigning to their, uh, to their staff. And uh, in a matter of two hours, we had 20 people from that office in my waiting room waiting to be interviewed. Oh my God. By Sunday, we had 63 people come through our office to (sighs) interview from that office. Oh my God. And we ended up hiring 54 people to change their mind. We landed with 52 people in four days. And I have to admit it was somewhere between exhilarating and exciting to one of those WTF moments where you go, what the heck did we do? And, uh, you know, are the, is the business going to come? Are clients going to join us? And we had 5,000 square feet. So, you know, how, you know, we, we had to squeeze people into conference rooms, Mm -hmm. but it was amazing. We created war rooms. We all rolled up our sleeves. The whole company went out. We started, pitching the, their, their, pro, their old clients who were now prospects into what we were doing. And mm-hmm. within like, within about two weeks, we had, I think $10 million of broker record letters. Um, and the business just took off. We, we, uh, we ended up in a lawsuit of course. And mm-hmm. we, uh, I will talk about how that went, but, uh, I learned, I learned a lot about litigation in California in that. And, uh, <laughs> And you know what? That became national news. I mean, people could have, I was getting calls from everybody. Is Could this possibly be true? Mm-hmm. You know, could you really have hired 52 people? It seemed like a plot and a plan and it was anything but that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that just brought more incoming opportunities for us. People, uh, the more they heard about it, the more they uh, learned about our story and, and where we were going. You know, it just became, uh, it just became, just became a driver of, of new opportunities and, and new acquisitions. We had actually owners started calling us to uh, learn more to have us be a, a featured place for them to possibly sell their company. That's wild. So it sounds like that yeah. hiring was monumental. And it also kind of worked as a, a marketing engine to get the word out, right? It did. Well, because we, and we got a lot of press. I mean, some of uh-huh. it, you know, it was... Uh, the serendipity of it was it was uh, it was done on on December seventh, so it looked like it was sort of a, a a plotted Pearl Harbor Day event, but it really wasn't. So we mm-hmm. uh, there was a lot of urban legend to the story, but it <laughs> it did it set course. It really uh, really created a lot of momentum for us. Very cool. Well, yeah. you know, John, before we dive into Epic today and you know your vision for the future and Galway Holdings. Um, I just want to ask you a quick question on, um, what you think has driven your success. If you had to point to three personality traits in yourself or, or three strategies that helped you achieve success in your career, what would they be? So for me, I mean, for as far as characteristics and, and, and traits, um, I, I think I'm a, I'm a good listener and people want to be heard. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, from the line from Hamilton, uh, talk less, smile more. And, uh, and so I, I, I think that, uh, people appreciate that 
as I said earlier, I, I walk the talk. Um, uh, I don't tell people to do things I don't do myself. And, you know, I get my hands dirty. I love being in this business mm -hmm. and I, uh, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good delegator. So if I, if I find out and can trust who I'm in business with, mm -hmm. um, I'm great delegating for them because, you know, what I learned early on was try and learn and understand what your skills and gifts are okay. and do a, a, do a lot of that and understand what your weaknesses and challenges are mm -hmm. and do less of that, but partner and hire people to do those things. Okay. And to be frank, I, I didn't know that innately. I, I learned that in kind of 97, 98, and, and I was having a lot of anxiety over what was going on in the business at that point in time. And I was trying to be great at everything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I had an amazing executive coach who, uh, quickly showed me that that is not the path. That's the path to a heart attack. And that's the path to not actually enjoying what you're doing. And, uh, wow. I embraced it. And it's, uh, it's one that I, I do today. It's why, it's why this, this team game works. Um, this company is not about me. It's about mm -hmm. us. It's about we, and I'm in business with some amazing people and I'm, uh, very fortunate. They've, entrusted me with either the businesses that they built and we acquired and I get to be a steward of that, um, of which I take that seriously, mm -hmm. um, as well as the people and the people who joined us, uh, whether they're, you know, great producers or people I knew. I mean, I'm lucky to have so many people in the company today that I created great relationships over the course of my entire career that, uh, or some days I feel like I'm in a, I'm in a fun, I'm in a, like a legalized frat house and, uh, <laughs> and, and well, one that's doing good things. One that's, that's not doing bad things, but, uh, -huh, uh, uh -huh. you know, it's, you know, culture, culture matters. And, and, you know, my, my goal is to be genuine and authentic. People use that a lot, but, uh, I think anyone who's worked with me over the course of time, uh, would say that I'm direct. I, uh, I don't mince words. I, mm -hmm. I try and be clear and, and I'm good with disagreeing and, and, and arguing and, mm -hmm. and, and I'm glad with, and, and I'm good with people having a different point of view. And if they own it, their point of view is going to drive the day, but I will hold them accountable. Awesome. Yeah. I think that's all, uh, those are all things I think that, um, I personally could get better at. And I think that, uh, I, it, it's not shocking that they, you know, those have been instrumental in, in your success. When we talk about Epic today, is there a way that you would describe Epic's current culture or the culture that you're striving to bring to the business? Yeah, so, you know, I think many things from the beginning still exist. Um, and we remain entrepreneurial. We're very strategic. We are highly specialized. Um, you know, my partners uh, who are helping me drive the business today, Steve Denton and Pete Garvey and John Jennings and, you know, all of our teams below that, they are all great at something or some things. And they all contribute to the overall of, of, of who we are. And, you know, they, they've relieved me from things that operationally I either 
tired of or ran its course and they're probably better than me. And now I get to spend my time on, you know, a lot of things that are happening in the industry that that's, you know, where's the future going? Distribution's changing. Underwriting is changing. Mm-hmm. Value brought by brokers to clients is changing. And I, I get to think about that and I get to wake up at three o'clock still every day trying to figure out and how do we differentiate and how do we win uniquely? So Mm -hmm. um, we're still entrepreneurial. It's a lot of what our recent move and the uh, evolution of, uh, of Galway holdings. I mean, we could have just kept doing what we were doing at Epic. We have a great run, Mm -hmm. but you know, we're looking at this company as being a long-term company. If you read any of Simon Sinek's books, his most recent book, The Infinite Game, is just it's probably it's probably the most impactful book I've read in five years. And you know, you've got to you got to make decisions today that build that for the next ten to twenty years. And you know, there are some things that will change, and lots of things that uh, that need to stick. I mean, they need to be your, your people need to bank on them. And we're learning on that during COVID, right? Is, mm-hmm. is how the, the foundation you built prior to COVID either enabled you to react and behave without interruption by running a company by Zoom, which I had no idea we'd be able to do. Uh-huh. Um, and have 3,200 people connected without being in an office you know, if you would have asked me in January, could we do it? I would have just said, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. And it has been seamless. And, you know, yet we're missing pieces, right? It's still about, right. there's a great way to meet you, but, you know, I'd rather be in your studio doing this together and, absolutely, you know, figure, figuring out where we're going to have lunch after and mm-hmm. me get to know you a little bit so I can, uh, pick your brain on when you're going to, uh, you know, how long you're going to take to build your company so I can buy it. <laughs> I, I totally, my pitch. I, I, I hear my you. Pitch, I hear you. I hear you. We'll have to talk later. I, uh, I totally agree with you though. I, I wish we could have done this in person and I am really glad that you brought up the Simon Sinek, Sinek book. Um, the infinite game, because that was, was going to be one of my questions. What, what book would you recommend? Um, so, uh, make sure sh- I'll make sure to take a note on that one and include that in uh, the notes for this specific podcast. But while yeah, we are- so read, 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 read that and read Principles by Ray Dalio and uh, read The Victory Machine. It's about our warriors. Victory Machine. And who wrote Victory Machine? Victory Machine was written by uh, Ethan Strauss. Okay. He's kind of a controversial uh, local writer, but uh, gives some pretty good insight as to, uh, again, how how- organizations get built. And I think, uh, you know, you've, you've, you've rooted for the warriors uh, uh-huh. as long, if not longer than me. So, you know, how bad it was for so many years, mm-hmm. but what it took to turn it around. And, and it, you know, it took some of the things I'm talking about to do that, which is, you know, right. Ownership at the top, right. Leadership at the executive level, yep. right. Coaches, right. General manager, and then players who, uh, you know, want to play for the, the gold ring. It's about winning. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so it's a great book in that regard. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I made notes of those. I'm a big fan of principles by Ray Dalio. That was, uh, 
that it, just the way that he's run his business is so interesting with the extreme transparency. So yep. I will make sure to note those in uh, the breakdown of the show online. And so just a couple more questions on Epic uh, before we jump off here, because I want to be respectful of your time. If there was an Epic employee, a brand new employee starting at Epic tomorrow morning, what advice would you give them as they are stepping into this industry with your company specifically? Be you. Don't be something other than that. Just be you. And whatever the things that that are that wake you up every day Mm -hmm. and that make you jump in the shower versus lollygag in and out, um, be clear about that. Communicate that. Do as much of that as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, our people still make their imprint on our company every single day. I mean, I, I, I end up, you know, acquisitions are a hard thing. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you get to diligence certain aspects of the, and, you know, we've made some fantastic acquisitions over the, the last uh, seven, eight, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, what I, I, I say to them is, you know, you, you built something fantastic you're contributing into something that's really great. Mm-hmm. How do we learn from each other and do more of that? And the people that came with that, once we learn who they are and what they are, mm-hmm. how do you fit into where we're going and ask questions, learn about it, be yeah. eager, um, listen, as I said, and, and raise your hand. And we, uh, we want to have a lot of upward mobility here. I mean, we, you know, we've got a lot going on uh, in the way of how we want to change, change the trajectory around diversity and inclusion. Um, I, I see a lot of companies that are checking boxes. We have no interest in checking boxes. I have interest in making a difference and changing how this plays out. And for us to provide opportunities mm-hmm. that are good for our company and good for our people and good for our clients and good for them as well. And, you know, we want to be inclusive. So, uh, you know, the, the, we have a lot to do over the next couple of years. So, you know, there's just, we have, we have grown so much in the last three years. I mean, the company grew from 70 million in revenue in 2013. Mm-hmm. We recapitalized our company at 2014 with the Carlisle group it was their first foray into, uh, into brokerage distribution. Okay. In two, 2017, we grew to 300 million. Uh, so we quadrupled the company. We're capitalized again with Oak Hill Capital. Mm-hmm. And today, today we sit at uh, $920 million in revenue. And this company, if you look at it and the way we think about it is like a jigsaw puzzle okay. where the pieces fit together. And we have now by these acquisitions things fit together. We are almost a complete picture where scale matters, uh, mm-hmm. the differentiation matters. Um, how do we provide unique services to our clients and how do we provide great opportunities for our, our people, producers, service teams to be successful with what they do and be best in class with their clients. And that's our path. That is a great answer. And I, I think that really applies. A lot of what you said applies to my next question. I just want to make sure I'm specific about the question that I asked, because again, I know there's a lot of agency owners that are listening to this podcast. 
if they were considering joining Epic, why should they consider beyond anything that you already said? I know you mentioned a lot, but that's my first question. The second one is, what is the ideal demographic of insurance agency that you are looking to acquire? So, I mean, over time that has evolved and morphed because, you know, 2014, we were California only. Mm-hmm. We were migrating outside. So uh, geography mattered. We were looking for what we'll call regional platforms that we could build off of and replicate our model in certain areas that we thought had, you know, great growth demographics. Mm-hmm. But we, we always sought for, sought, have really sought out Uh, agencies or brokers who did something or some things Mm -hmm. unique and different and really well. And everyone's got general business, so that's all fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And we, we're good at figuring out what to do with general business. Okay. But if you have something unique that you've done and you're ready to expand that, you want capital to put behind it, you want a risk-taking attitude right. that'll help take it to the next level. We'll look at data and analytics in a way and technology where we can invest in it, invest behind them. Mm-hmm. That is number one, a great choice then. And, and we are then a good choice for them. If they're just looking for a price, because I think valuations are pretty similar. My My peer group, I respect them all, but we price things all pretty similarly. Mm -hmm. If somebody just wants to be rolled up and do their own thing and don't care about strategic connection and where they go next, we're, we're bad. We'd be a bad choice. We want to, we want people to partner with us. How can we take what they've done and do it to a much greater degree and be phenomenal at it, be best in league at that. Mm -hmm. So, so that's number one culture. We, I really want people to get, a feel for our culture, which can sometimes be challenging pre-sale. Mm-hmm. Um, but speak to people that sold their companies to us. How did it work out? What went well? What didn't? You know, I, I, I can only answer that through my lens and my eyes. I can't answer it from theirs. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm buying the businesses. So I, I, I see what I see, but I think they can do that. And then the litmus test is, you know, could you hang out for a weekend with the people? Right. You can hang out for a week and you can uh, then you've you've gotten past a big hurdle. If you can't get past uh-huh. the weekend, then, you know, do you really want to be partners with somebody? And, uh-huh. and I know I know I do. I, you know, the people in this company, I've, I've many of them, they're, they're my friends outside of uh, out of work. And, you know, I, I love their families. I I, I follow what their kids do. I mm-hmm. it gets harder as you get to three thousand people. I can't. I don't. <laughs> I can imagine. I don't know. I, I at my age, I don't know people's names as well. But I'm, uh-huh. I try like hell to do it. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know, you got to wake up and want to be in a company with the same people, right? You mm-hmm. just, you know, you're doing this every day. You, you want to know you're in the foxhole with somebody that you're going to watch their back. They're going to watch yours. Right. Yeah. That, that's really cool to hear. And I'm sure there's a lot of agency owners that are listening to this that, um, you know, you've provided a lot of background on the way that you approach things. And I love that you're using this as an opportunity to give more insight into yourself, into the culture of Epic. So I know that we are uh, running short on time. I have one final question for you. And 
I, I would just love to know if there's anything that you've incorporated into your daily routine that has, you know, helps you optimize the way you perform in a business sense. And so I know you mentioned, you know, you could be waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning. Is there, what, what does the average day look like for John Hahn? Yeah, so I'm a I'm a I'm a morning person, and and I'm at my my sharpest uh, after uh, my first cup of uh, bulletproof coffee, and uh, right. I get the I get the uh, I get the brain working. But I'm I'm I kind of my day gets started around six. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, you know I've I've had to learn new habits and and ways uh, since the pandemic, and you know where to do that. So for me. It's sort of I, I have to move from a couple of different locations so it feels fresh and each conversation seems fresh. I uh-huh. I wear, I wear, I inspire myself with what I wear every day. So for this, I you know, I had a little epic swag that I had on. Yeah. And my USA today, my USA hat comes from uh, Jim Craig, the USA Olympic hockey goalie. This is uh, the 40-year anniversary of them beating the Russians and I was uh, feeling inspired That's on awesome. uh, on uh, David beating Goliath because I uh, I know at a stage we were David and I still feel like that some days. Uh-huh. So it was uh, was my uh, my inspiration for uh, the day was uh, to honor Jim and what his team did and uh, you know it, that's far greater achievement than anything I've done. But uh, yeah, and then it's uh, you know I work out five, at least five days a week, if not six. It's okay. uh, I find energy dips if I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife is uh, is gluten free, and I found out that I'm even though I'm not gluten intolerant, I feel better and healthier staying away from it and not having any trips to New York. I'm not being tempted by New York Italian food that I miss dearly, and uh-huh. New York pizza where oh, I would man. come back with a bel- belly bomb. Uh-huh. And uh, and look, I've uh, I've as I've told our people, I've engaged in a uh, because I didn't know if this pandemic was going to lead to the end of the world or not. So I've been on a uh, wine inventory reduction strategy. Okay. And, uh, so we're going through some pretty good uh, wine selections every night, just in case the world ends. I don't want to, I don't want to have missed out on very many things. So it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, I have a great family life. My, my, uh, you know, my, my wife and I have a phenomenal relationship. Uh, she's my, my best friend and partner and, mm-hmm. Uh, my kids are I have three great kids who thankfully are not home with me. I don't think I'd love them that much if they were home with me. They're out on their own doing good things, but, uh, you know, we've, uh, we're, we're lucky enough that, uh, we share, you know, sports and business, uh, we're all warrior fanatics. So we go uh, dubs and yeah, man. And, uh, they, uh, by childbirth, they became Yankee and New York giant fans. So you can, all right. See my New York Giants. I was going to ask. Neiman behind. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that that uh, that commemorates, uh, and I, that's up because that was uh, after the first year of business at Tri City. Um, I made more money than I ever thought I was going to make that first year, mm-hmm. and that was the first year the Giants went to the Super Bowl in L.A. against Denver, okay. and I took my dad to that game because he was a huge influence in my life. And uh, we never thought the Giants would get in the Super Bowl, so I flew him out. Uh, when I told him about it, 
He got really nervous. He asked me if I was doing something illegal to have the money to pay for this. <laughs> and I assured him that wholesale brokerage was legal. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I, this is, uh, this really set the table for how I think about achievements is I, I, I look in the, the front mirror go, you know, in the car, but, uh, I oftentimes have to look back to make sure I, I celebrate what we did that was good and what was, what, and, and you, you do that with the people that you did it with. So, uh, this reminds me of that. Cause sometimes I forget about that. Yeah. I'm glad we could, uh, assist in that process, be a little more retrospective and also, you know, like really look back and be thankful and, and cause you've had one of the most exciting insurance careers. And like I said, in the beginning, objectively, one of the most successful people in the insurance industry. So it's so cool for you to share your story and everything it took to get to where you're at now. And um, before we jump off, you know, again, I know we've run long, but is there any final messages that you want to get out there to the audience that's listening? Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I think I hit most of it, but you just landed on one, which is, look, I think if anything happens that has happened over the last five months, it's that uh, those who are fortunate should live a life of gratitude. Mm-hmm. And I'm really grateful. It hasn't been a perfect career. I've, I've had more than my share of mistakes, as I told you when yep. we first chatted that I've, uh, I have clearly made more bonehead decisions and mistakes than probably my whole company put together. Uh-huh. Uh, but I get up off the ground every time and I learn from it and, and I've, I've made some good decisions and, and, and I'm willing to take risks. I'm willing to fail. Um, and, uh, it's a great industry in that way. You should, uh, it's what I love about what you're doing. You guys are, I've been following you uh, online for two years. I, I don't, I don't follow that many companies and, uh, you guys have a lot of guts. I love what you're doing out there. And if there's anything uh, I can do to, to help in that regard, uh, other than paying you a lot of money and making you rich someday <laughs> when I buy your firm, um, it, uh, it's, uh, I'm a lucky guy. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my, my dad was one of my great mentors cause he was a, he was a pretty middle of the road guy. And, and he told me early on that, uh, you know, he had four kids by the time he was 27 and, worked two jobs and couldn't take risks. And he said, you're, you're different than me. You need, you need to do this. You need to be an entrepreneur. You, you need to be an example and uh, you need to be somebody that uh, over time will hopefully do something good. And, uh, and he said, remember uh, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And he was right about that. (laughs) Well, that's awesome, John. I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing the insight. I also know that we have so much more that we could talk about when it comes to, you know, your um, interest and the amount that you've given back for in, in uh, the nonprofit sense and your passions there. And I, I think that, you know, we'll definitely have to have an additional conversation down the line here to, to delve into more of those topics. So really appreciate you coming on. And uh, with that said... Uh, We will sign off. Mr. John Hahn, thank you so much for coming on. I will talk to you soon, man. Thanks, Pat. Good job. And uh, keep this going. It's uh, it's really fresh. I, uh, I, uh, I, I think what you're doing is really cool. That's the plan. Will do. All right, John. We'll talk to you. Bye. See you, man. Ciao. See ya.